0: no grave can hold my body down there ain't no grave can hold my body down, down. they caught my wife and they sold him but I don't know who to he is a rambunctious sword ain't he <laughs> what's your name? Django. the D is silent. Is it just me, or does the image of the cowboy feel whiter than white? I mean, to me at least, when I see a movie like Django Unchained, from which we just heard clips, it feels like reversing the genre. It's turning it on its head when Jamie Foxx goes all cowboy lead slinger, lead slinger, a gunfighter, and yet. In actual history, one out of every four cowboys was black, and it wasn't just black and white, either. Perhaps around 12% of cowboys were Mexican, so the image of the cowboy as whiter than white is simply not right. A movie like Django Unchained feels like reversing the genre by foregrounding a black cowboy, but in terms of actual history, it's not a reversal at all. It's arguably more accurate. For example, there was renowned wrangler Nat Love who wrote in his autobiography, Mounted on my favorite horse, my long horse-hide lariat near my hand, and my trusty guns in my belt, and the broad plains stretching away for miles and miles, every foot of which I was familiar with, I felt that I could defy the world. What man with the fire of life and youth and health in his veins could not rejoice in such a life? I mean, does it get any more cowboy than that? One in four was black, but that's not all. In addition, the typical cattle handling outfit was mixed. You heard me right, the typical outfit was mixed. It's not like there were three all white outfits for every all black outfit or something like that and numbers come out of the average, no, no, no. All black outfits did exist, but they were the exception, not the rule. Mixed outfits were the norm. So black cowboys were not only common, but they rode side by side with their white counterparts. And while it is true that black cowboys struggled to achieve the highest ranks, say like trail boss or ranch boss, they filled almost every other position. And believe it or not, in most outfits, white and black cowboys even received equal pay. Now how could that be? I mean, we're talking about a time right after the Civil War, right? Two seconds before, African-American slaves had received no pay at all, and the Emancipation Proclamation did not mandate equal pay. That had to wait till 1964, and we are still struggling to make it a reality even today. So how could there be a job with equal pay so soon after the Civil War? And out of all the places, how could that place be the land of the supposedly whiter than white cowboy, the Wild West? As historian Kenneth W. Porter summarily declares, African Americans, quote, "...enjoyed greater opportunities for a dignified life there than anywhere else in the United States." Well, that just doesn't fit the received image of the frontier, now does it? Now, don't get me wrong, there was discrimination on the frontier, plenty of it, even among cowboys. But that discrimination played out in interesting ways in this highly masculine profession There was relatively little discrimination out on the trail, where men were among other men, and what mattered most was skill and being a straight arrow. Straight arrow, an honest forthright person. But when cowboys rode into town, it was a different story. In the presence or potential presence of white women, suddenly things flipped upside down. Anxieties about miscegenation or interracial coupling turned the surprisingly mixed West into a segregated society in town. Moreover, this same miscegenation phobia only increased as the frontier closed at the end of the 19th century, reaching a fever pitch in the early 20th century, just as western films started appearing. And then what do you suppose happened to the image of the cowboy? What's going on here? Did miscegenation fears whitewash the western genre? Is that how the cowboy became whiter than white? And if so, then what was the West really like for men and women of African descent? And how were their stories forgotten? That's what we're talking about in today's episode. I'm BT Newberg, and this is the history of sex. History of Sex is sponsored by Dr. Jillian Kenny, historian of women, sex, and magic in medieval Europe. I'd like to thank our Patreon patron, Tim Saliga, for making this episode possible. Folks, this is the fourth episode in our ongoing series, Sex in the Wild West. We've looked at the American frontier from several different angles at this point already. Men, women, even cross-dressers. And now it's time to tackle race. Because, as we've already seen in our introduction, race and sex get tangled up rather quickly. Just as we saw in our earlier series, Sex in the Third Reich, where Nazi racial policy hinged upon Nazi sexual policy, so too was race and sex bound up together rather intimately in the American Wild West. Now, race, of course, covers not just black and white, but also Native Americans, Chinese Americans, Mexican Americans, and a whole lot more. Today, we are going to focus primarily on African Americans, but as we'll see, tensions, of course, reverberated across the racial landscape. All right, let's begin. (whistles) Folks, we've been fed corral dust. Corral dust. Lies and tall tales. That's some authentic frontier lingo for you there, folks. It seems the Western genre has been whitewashed. I mean, maybe it's just me. Maybe I'm showing my bias here when I say that it feels like the cowboy is whiter than white. But I don't think it's just me. I mean, here's a Quora forum online where someone asks exactly the same question. They ask, why do people think that cowboys were all white? And here's a Guardian article entitled, Where Have All the Black Cowboys Gone? And so, I don't think it's just me. There really does seem to be a sense out there that cowboys were all one skin tone. So, why would this be? Well, of course, there are many reasons. Uh, For one thing, you know, modern racial identities in America have chosen to foreground certain aspects and let others fade. Parts of black culture today, like hip-hop, tend to project a very urban, streets kind of lifestyle even though there are black rural folks, too. And at the same time, parts of white culture, like country western music, for example, tend toward the opposite. So the idea of a black cowboy kind of runs contrary to stereotypical assumptions these days. That's certainly part of it. But I think there's more to it. Much more, in fact. I think that the western genre itself has been whitewashed. But what do I mean by whitewashed? Well, I don't mean that black cowboys have been absent from films. They haven't. Rather, somehow, they've been made invisible. See, unlike male-to-female cross-dressers that we heard about last time, black cowboys were not excised from the silver screen. On the contrary, they were there in spades. I mean, with a quick Google search, I managed to turn up nearly 40 Western movies and TV shows featuring black characters, and even that list is nowhere near complete. And what's more they're not just modern flicks like Django Unchained or even the very recent Netflix film The Heart of They Fall, which features a nearly all-black cast. Here's one, for example, that goes all the way back to 1939, entitled The Bronze Buckaroo, starring Herb Jeffries. Gun, I want to send a message and I don't want no answer. Special delivery. You found the red right address. So truth be told, black cowboys have appeared in westerns all throughout the 20th century. And yet, it doesn't feel that way. Why? Well, of course there are many factors. Race and identity in America is a very complicated, nuanced thing with a lot of history. But I'm just going to focus on the factors that are endemic to the movies themselves. So, for one thing, black characters in westerns have often been given minor roles, you know, peripheral to the plot, or they've been sidekicks or comic relief. So quantity is not necessarily quality when it comes to film representation, that's one thing. However, that's not always the case. There have also been prominent examples where the quality really was there. For example, the 1992 film Unforgiven, Morgan Freeman fights side-by-side with Clint Eastwood, gets just as much screen time, and really feels like a main character on equal footing. Further back than that, Woody Strode starred in the 1960 film Sergeant Rutledge with no white counterpart as co-star. And all the way back in 1922, there was already a silent film, now lost, called The Bulldogger, starring black cowboy Bill Pickett as himself. That's right, he was an actual real-life cowboy from the Wild West, and he starred as himself in this silent picture. And yet, somehow, even at that time, way back in 1922, black cowboys were apparently already feeling invisible. And this is poignantly illustrated by a story recalled by actor-singer Herb Jeffries in the 1994 documentary Midnight Ramble. Sometime in the early to mid-1930s, while on tour in Cincinnati, Jeffries came across a young black boy who was a fan of silver screen cowboy Tom Mix. The boy, however, was in tears. Now here's how Jeffries tells the story. We were traveling on the road. It was in Cincinnati, Ohio. Uh, It was an early evening, about 5 o'clock, and there were a bunch of children running up the alleyway. A group of little white children and one little black child uh, running along behind, and he was crying. They went through the fence, and so we called him over and says, uh, Hey, what's the matter? Those guys hit you? And he said, No, they're my friends said, your friends, what are you crying about? He said, well, we're playing cowboy and I want to be Tom Mix, and they won't let me be Tom Mix because Tom Mix ain't black. Well, black children cannot relate in a cowboy picture. Who can they be, you see? And yet there were many great black cowboys, great heroes in our history. Who could they be? These children, they were playing cowboys, and the boy couldn't be Tom because already... In the eyes of these children, black folks couldn't be cowboys. Already in the mid-1930s, cowboys were whiter than white. Now, this was just 40 years after the closing of the frontier. A quarter of all cowboys had been black, and yet, just four decades later, they were already forgotten. And remember, too, this is just one decade after that Bill Pickett film where he starred as himself in the flesh. And yet, it seems that audiences like these children, couldn't see him. The black cowboy was already invisible. For these children, cowboys were whiter than white. Now, after this experience, Herb Jeffries determined to make cowboy flicks for black children just like that little boy. And he starred in many with titles like Harlem on the Prairie, Two-Gun Man from Harlem, and the one that we heard just a moment ago, The Bronze Buckaroo. No doubt this did bolster the self-esteem of many a Black Child. And yet, it was clear that these movies were made for a black audience, and when it came to general audience movies, the black cowboy continued to fade away. And this is sometimes how it went. Often, black historical figures from the real Wild West, when they were depicted in general audience movies, were replaced by white characters. For example, the Lone Ranger, who appeared in radio as early as 1933, was likely inspired by real-life Deputy Marshal Bass Reeves, who was, you guessed it, black. Nevertheless, the series did not present the hero that way. And now, I guess this is radio, so I suppose there's some leeway for the imagination, but the voice actor was not black, and when the Lone Ranger did finally appear in film in 1938, he looked just like those children had expected. The Lone Ranger, based on a black historical figure, was whiter than white. That's how it happens sometimes. Another example, in 1951, the film Tomahawk told the story of black frontiersman Jim Beckworth, and yet the actor was white. And 1956's The Searchers, quite possibly the greatest Western movie of all time, was inspired by black Texan Brit Johnson, yet who was the star? John Wayne. So that's what I mean when I say whitewashed. It was a lot of different things coming together, and in many ways it was no accident, either. It's not that black cowboys were not there in the films, they were, but their presence became invisible. And that's how we arrived at a point where even when a film does feature a black lead, like Morgan Freeman in Unforgiven, or, you know, Denzel Washington in The Magnificent Seven, or Will Smith in Wild Wild West, and so many others, You just don't think of them when you think of cowboys. So through a combination of marketing to niche audiences, low quality character roles in general audience films, and even outright replacement by white actors, black cowboys have become invisible. The white-skinned cowboy is now such an automatic assumption that a black-skinned cowboy feels like reversing the genre. It was true in the 1930s, and it's true today. The western has been whitewashed. Okay, so what exactly was it then that was forgotten through this whitewashing process? What was the Wild West really like for black men and women at that time? That's what I wanna explore next here. So first off, I should be clear that what I mean when I say cowboy, Up until this point, I've been using it in the rather loose cinematic sense of, you know, pretty much any gun-toting character that features in a Western genre movie. But at this point now, I want to narrow that definition down to the much more specific historical sense of the profession of cattle handling on the frontier. And it's in this sense that one out of every four cowboys was black. That statistic comes from a study by the Trail Drivers Association, which found from the 1860s to the 1880s, there were around 5,000 workers in the range cattle industry, and up to 25% of those workers were African Americans. It's also in that very specific cattle handler definition of the word that they received equal pay. As historian Kenneth Porter relates... Strange though it may seem, there is no clear-cut evidence that Negro cowhands were generally or seriously discriminated against in the matter of wages. Porter's a little old school in its terminology, but his point is accurate. They received equal pay. Strange indeed. The cowboy trade was one of the few opportunities of the day where black men could earn pay equal to their white counterparts. Now, to be fair, the playing field was not perfectly even by no means, It was rare, for example, that a black cowboy was ever promoted to the highest rank of trail boss or ranch boss, and also some sources do suggest that they might sometimes be given harder tasks, like breaking horses, for example. And finally, it seems relatively few of them were gunslingers, as they might suffer greater consequences for shooting a white man. So it's not like the playing field was perfectly even. However, it was more even than many other professions of the day. Hmm. Okay, so wait a minute, let's back up a second. Why were there so many black folks in the West in the first place to become cowboys like this? And then how were they able to obtain such relatively equal terms? Well, first of all, after the Civil War, droves of black folks found themselves newly free and eager to make their way. The frontier represented the same thing to them as it did to others—opportunity. See, when Reconstruction denied the 40 acres and a mule promised to freed slaves, many of them looked west. A whole movement called the Exodusters migrated west to Kansas, and an even greater zeal brought families to the so-called promised land of Oklahoma. And in Kansas, Oklahoma, and elsewhere, they founded black towns with black mayors, black sheriffs, black business people, black everything The all-black town that we see in a movie like The Harder They Fall, well, that's not revisionist history. That is entirely accurate. Black folks settled the West no less than anyone else, and they did so for opportunity. The second reason was demand for labor. See, on the frontier, labor was scarce, and employers could not necessarily afford to be choosy. Consequently, black people often stood a better chance of getting hired in the West. And the final reason was high demand skills. See, black people often had skills that were especially valuable on the frontier. Many of them had previously worked with cattle back on plantations, and some were excellent hands at horses as well. For example, Addison Jones was famous for breaking wild horses, a dangerous job called topping. These were valuable skills that were in high demand. And another skill that many African Americans brought to the frontier was cooking. Now, I know that may not sound very glorious, but actually, the cook was highly regarded. The quality of food offered by a cowboy outfit was often what attracted cowboys to one outfit over another. So, employers regularly paid cooks higher wages, sometimes up to twice the salary of an ordinary cowhand. And so, due to opportunity, labor demands, and valuable skills on offer, African Americans headed west no less than others. The real cowboy trade was by no means whiter than white. It was every bit a mixed-race affair, with black folks not just present, but typical. But not all black folks in the West became cowboys. There were also soldiers, for example. Some 180,000 had served in the Civil War, And despite an initial wage gap, by the end of the war, they were actually receiving equal pay there as well. And when the war ended, many of them still had years left to go on their commissions, and they were sent west. And there they acquired the nickname Buffalo Soldiers. Now, popular legend claims that this moniker was given them by Native Americans who thought their curly hair resembled buffalo fur, but the true origin of the nickname is unknown. We might just never know. Regardless, they earned a reputation as strong military men, and in at least one case, military women. Kathy Williams cross-dressed as a man in order to join the military, and served two years as Buffalo soldier William Cathay. Now, speaking of women, what was the West like for them? When black men answered the call, go west, young man, black women also responded. Unfortunately, the prospects for them were not quite as rosy, There were no good equal-pay opportunities like cattle-handling or soldiers, for example. Moreover, because black men who were not cowboys or soldiers did often suffer a wage gap, the average household tended to be more strapped for cash, and this led to greater pressure for women to seek work outside of the home. Many ended up finding employment as domestics, such as housekeepers, cooks, nannies, and laundresses. Others turned to prostitution. And you might even find all-black brothels in towns with a large number of black cowboys or soldiers coming through. But examples can be found of women breaking into other trades as well. For example, Emily O.G. Gray opened a furniture workshop in St. Anthony, Minnesota. Some opened boarding houses or became real estate brokers. And then there were those who took up more rough-and-tumble careers. For example, we already heard about Kathy Williams' stint as a buffalo soldier. In addition to that, Mary Fields drove stagecoach across California. Henrietta Williams Foster, better known to history as Aunt Riddy, herded cattle as a cowgirl in Texas. And Johanna July, a woman of mixed black and Seminole descent, became a highly sought-after bronco-peeler. Bronco-peeler. Someone who tames unbroken horses. So suffice to say that black women in the West, while clearly disadvantaged, found their way nonetheless. Now, one surprising silver lining for them was education. See, many black women in the West were quite literate. Because they tended to live in towns and cities, they actually often had better access to schooling than even some rural white women. Plus, as historian Glenda Riley notes, Black families sometimes chose to educate daughters instead of sons to protect girls from employment exploitation. So black women, in some ways, actually had a bit of a leg up in terms of education. And once educated, many of them entered teaching, and some even became nurses, doctors, journalists, or editors. In short, for both men and women of African descent, the West represented opportunity. And while the equality of that opportunity was mm, uneven at best, one could make a go of it and there were, at least for men, certain jobs where they could earn respect and even equal pay. Given the choices that were on offer within the United States at the time, the West was relatively welcoming. However, that welcome did have its limits. Despite all that has been said thus far, the West could also be downright unwelcoming in certain circumstances. In the right places, the amount of melanin in one's skin which may have mattered relatively little just moments before, could spark tension. And when it came to one subject in particular, anxiety smoldered which could blaze into a fire at the slightest breeze. That subject was sex. Now now what does sex have to do with any of this? How can sex turn the relatively mixed West into a segregated society? And how did it ultimately lead to the whitewashing of the Western genre? That's what we're going to explore next. But first, we'll take a short break, and we'll be back after this. And now, the history of sex presents this. Hey folks, this is normally the part where we have some humorous historical skit, but this time, we've got something even better. An audio drama production of a scene from the only existing autobiography of a real black cowboy, The Life and Adventures of Nat Love. Nat Love was a former slave, taught to read by his father, even though antebellum statutes outlawed black literacy at the time. And after the Civil War, Nat was freed along with all other slaves, and after a short period as a sharecropper, he headed west. His autobiography, published in 1907, tells the tale. Now, let me tell you, folks, Nat pretty much fulfills the expectations for a raucous cowboy adventure story. He is certainly not above sprinkling in a little of that corral dust, you know, tall tales. And it's really enough to make any reader wonder what's really true and what's fiction here. But nonetheless, it is a fun tale, and so here you go. Oh, and fair warning, Nat's language and comportment is, shall we say, a bit off color. This was certainly not the age of political correctness to put it lightly. After the buffalo hunt, we were sent down in old Mexico to get a herd of horses. I left the boys to continue with the herd while I made for the nearest saloon, which happened to be located in one of the low mud houses of that country with a wide door and a clay floor. As the door was standing open and looked so inviting I did not want to go to the trouble of dismounting So, urging my horse forward, I rode into the saloon First, however, scattering with a few random shots The respectable sized crowd of dirty Mexicans hanging around as I was in no humor to pay for the drinks for such a motley gathering Riding up to the bar, I ordered keller for myself and a generous measure of pulque for my horse, both popular Mexican drinks. <laughs> I am not kidding, folks. That's literally what it says right here. He rides up to the bar, he shoots off his guns, and he demands a drink for himself and his horse. That's Nat Love. Later in the story, he finds himself in the Dakota territory and tells how he earns the nickname Deadwood Dick. We went our way to Deadwood with our herd, where we arrived on the 3rd of July, 1876, eight days after the Custer Massacre took place. The next morning, July 4th, the gamblers and mining men made up a purse of $200 for a roping contest between the cowboys that were then in town, six of them being colored cowboys including myself our trail boss was chosen to pick out the mustangs from a herd of wild horses just off the range and he picked out 12 of the most wild and vicious horses that he could find it seems to me that the horse chosen for me was the most vicious of the lot everything being in readiness the 45 cracked and we all sprang forward together each of us making for our particular Mustang. I roped, threw, tied, bridled, saddled, and mounted my Mustang exactly nine minutes from the crack of the gun. The time of the next nearest competitor was 12 minutes and 30 seconds. This gave me the record and championship of the West, which I held up to the time I quit the business in 1890, and my record has never been beaten. And that goes on to win a shooting contest against the likes of Stormy Jim Powderhorn Bill and Whitehead, who is part Native American. The name of Deadwood Dick was given to me by the people of Deadwood, South Dakota, July 4, 1876, after I had proven myself worthy to carry it, and after I had defeated all comers in riding, roping, and shooting. And I have always carried the name with honor since that time. And that is how Nat Love became Deadwood Dick, or at least one of the Deadwood Dicks. It's not clear which of the many who claimed that nickname was actually the model for the hero of Wheeler's 1885 fictional western novel Deadwood Dick on Deck and its many sequels, but perhaps it was none other than Black Cowboy Nat Love. (laughs) All right, we're back. Now it's time for us to look at the other side of the Wild West, the not-so-friendly frontier, and how anxieties smoldered, ready to flare up at a moment's notice. First, it's important to recognize that none of what has been said so far means that folk in the West were not racist. They most certainly were. Even if we ignore for the moment the rampant racism against Native Americans, Chinese Americans, Mexican Americans, and so many others, and focus solely for the moment on black-white relations, there's still plenty to remark upon. Black men may have been granted respect and equal pay in certain jobs, and black women may have been able to make their way and even obtain slightly better education prospects than even some white women, but that does not a fair society make. See, slavery was only recently extinguished, and it had been present in the West. Texas, for example, had been a slave state, while Utah and New Mexico territories had experimented with it as well. Meanwhile, even free states and territories did not necessarily consider all races to be equal, and slavery was by no means the only institution of race-based discrimination. Another was anti-miscegenation law. Miscegenation refers to coupling between races, whether we're talking about marriage or whether we're talking about sex. Now, anti-miscegenation laws in North America date back at least as far as the 17th century in the colonies of Virginia and Maryland. But nearly all US states passed similar laws at one point in history. There's maybe like nine or 10 that never did. Most states did have these laws. And as for the West, Only four western states repealed such laws prior to 1888, so within the heyday of the cowboy. Those states were Iowa, Washington, Kansas, and New Mexico. All of the rest of them would keep them well past the heyday of the cowboy and into the mid-20th century. Now, the target of these laws wasn't actually the mixing of races per se. For example, unions between blacks and Asians. Well, legislators didn't really care about that. Rather, They specifically cared about the mixing of the white race with non-whites. And this led to some peculiar mental gymnastics in some cases. See, in order to legislate against the mixing of the white race, lawmakers had to define whiteness, which had been a moving target all throughout North American history. For example, back in the 18th century, no less than Ben Franklin had considered only Britons and Germans from Saxony to be white. So not even all Germans were white for him, only those that came from the region of Saxony, plus English people, were white. But that circle of whiteness expanded over time, and by the mid-nineteenth century, it had expanded to include most people of European descent, although the Irish were still a little dubious from their perspective, and also Mexicans were white by law, but not really by custom, kind of an in-between space at this time. So whiteness evolved over time and so it was always a moving target for these legislators to try to define and make laws about it now whiteness became even messier than this when it came to those who had mixed descent for example one arizona law on the books around the turn of the century forbade quote all marriages of persons of caucasian blood or their descendants with negroes mongolians or indians and their descendants Now, that kind of legalese, if you really boil it down, here's what it comes to. This basically left mixed-race folk legally able to marry no one. Because if you think about it, their white ancestry prevented them from marrying non-white people, while their non-white ancestry prevented them from marrying white people. Nor even other mixed-race people. You couldn't even marry other people who were mixed. And so, in the end, this law basically left mixed-race folk up a tree up a tree, in a difficult situation. Now this sort of absurdity pervaded anti-miscegenation legislation, but it did not stop it. Over the second half of the 19th century, at least 15 Western states and territories passed laws against miscegenation. And this was based on deep-rooted anxieties endemic to the culture, in the West no less than elsewhere. And this can be seen in customs dictating who could do what, when, and where in the West. For example, out on the trail, relations between black and white cowboys were relatively peaceable, partly because it was mostly men among men. See, even though there were female cowboys, they were rare, and also cattle work was so male-coded that anxieties about miscegenation, well, they just rarely flared up. However, in town, it was a whole different story. Best buddies out on the trail might treat each other quite differently in the presence or even the potential presence of white ladies in town. For example, if two cowboys, one white, one black, went to a restaurant, the one would be seated without question, but the other may have to order his food from the back door and eat it in the kitchen or outside sitting on a hitching rail. Hitching rail is, uh, that's what you tie your horses to. Historian Kenneth Porter says that this is partly because of the symbolic value attached to sitting down and eating together, but principally because women might be guests in the dining room or cafe. So here we can see a system of segregation normally associated in our minds with the Deep South, but here it is in the Wild West as well. Now, if those same two cowboys were to, say, walk into a saloon, the scene might play out a little differently. Porter explains. Even in Texas, segregation in the saloons was apparently informal. Whites, it seems, were served at one end of the bar, Negroes at the other. But should a white man and a Negro choose to drink and converse together in the neutral zone between the two sections, probably no objection would be raised. I like that word probably in there. (laughs) But, But this is interesting. Both of them could enter through the front door. They could both slake their thirst under the same roof. And although approaching the bar did require a little caution and a little savvy, folk of different races might still bump elbows in the middle, share a shot of whiskey, and have a palaver. Palaver, a casual conversation from the Spanish palabra, meaning word. So unlike the strictly segregated restaurants, saloons were only loosely segregated they were open to black men and it was possible to interact and even bond across the color line now why would these two types of establishments both of them serving refreshments of different sorts why would they differ in this respect well one reason is because a restaurant was a quote-unquote respectable space which was appropriate for white ladies of a certain status and even if no such ladies were present, their potential presence was apparently enough to ordain a custom of segregation. On the other hand, a saloon was no place for a respectable lady, according to the views at the time. Saloons were male spaces, and with apologies to Calamity Jane, who liked to hang out there quite a bit, as we heard last episode, it was considered unladylike to cavort in saloons. So this eased anxieties about miscegenation. And segregation was correspondingly a bit more lax in saloons. And it was even more lax at the gambling table. See, when the cards came out, there was little distinction made between races. Now, presumably this was partly a matter of just competitive necessity. As Porter states, a gambler who intended to separate a Negro trail hand from his wages through the more than expert use of cards and dice, could hardly do so without sitting down with him at the same card or crap table. So they kind of had to share the same space, but at the same time, you know, gambling was another one of those highly male-coded spaces where women were rarely present. It was also unladylike. And so, miscegenation fears were eased there as well. Consequently, whites and blacks both read from the same California prayer book. California prayer book a deck of cards. So the gambling table was hardly segregated at all. And moreover, when things came to blows at the gambling table or elsewhere, sides did not necessarily break down along racial lines. Historian C. Robert Hayward notes that violence between whites and blacks in Dodge City, where he he did a particular study of that city, Violence between whites and blacks in Dodge City was surprisingly rare, and he even cites a few instances where whites actually defended their black fellows in a scuffle. Now once again, violence is a male space. Unless you're fighting over a woman, ladies tended not to be present. So we're starting to see a pattern here. But in spaces where ladies were always present, particularly in a sexual context, that's where segregation once again might rear its ugly head. For example, brothels were completely off-limits to black customers. The thought of black men sleeping with white women, even such soiled doves, soiled doves, prostitutes, aka sportin' women, doves of the roost, or nymphs do prairie. The thought of black men sleeping with white women was apparently too much. If a black cowboy hoped to indulge his appetites of these sort, Well, he had to do it either at a black brothel if the town was large enough to have one, or he had to avail himself of the few independent black ladies that might be working in a smaller town. Thus, the strongest segregation of all was precisely in the most explicitly sexual of situations where ladies were present. So we can see from this that segregation in the West manifested more or less along a sliding scale conforming to how likely it was for white women to be present. And where the question of interracial sex became explicit, segregation was strongest of all. Fear of miscegenation, or quote-unquote polluting the white race, was palpable throughout the heyday of the cowboy. Then, at the turn of the century, just as the sun was setting on the real-life Wrangler and rising on the silver screen one, it proliferated even further. Miscegenation fears reached a fever pitch heading into the 1920s. The infamous Red Summer of 1919 saw more than three dozen racial riots, or more accurately, racial massacres, Now, the situation there was more complicated than we can get into here in this episode, and I don't want to give the impression that sexual tension was the only or the root cause of that, but it was certainly a major factor, and you can see this, because witness just two years following in 1921, when the mere accidental touching of a white woman by a black man in an elevator appears to have lit the match, of the Tulsa Race Massacre. That's the best we can reconstruct of what actually happened. It seems like he probably stumbled and maybe used the white woman to kind of steady himself, Uh, but it was reported in the papers that he ripped her dress and attacked her in his elevator, and so that set things off. And in response, a white mob rampaged across the black town of Greenwood, and more than 35 square blocks were razed to the ground the death toll of this event was at least 39. That's like what's officially acknowledged. But total estimates range all the way up to about 300 killed. And if you want to learn more about that particular event, I highly recommend Nia Clark's excellent podcast, Dreams of Black Wall Street. Now, this event, the Tulsa Race Massacre, was buried in silence for decades, and its true extent is only now coming to light. And at the heart of it, was the fear of miscegenation. Whatever other tensions smoldered, it was the touching of a white woman by a black man that lit the match and caused it to flare into a conflagration. So this was the cultural milieu in which the genre of the Western came to Hollywood. It's no wonder that silver screen wranglers lost any hint of melanin. Those early films may have been black and white, but their cowboys sure weren't in a genre which romanticized the cowboy as a symbol of American masculinity who could hardly ride through town without causing local women to have to air out their drawers, well, there just was no place for cowboys of color. Hollywood filmmakers, the ones targeting general audiences at least, crafted their films around these spheres. And these were made concrete in Hollywood in 1930 when the Hayes Code, was put into place. The Hayes Code was a set of industry guidelines which sort of self-censored Hollywood films, and one of the things that it banned outright was depicting intimate contact between the races, particularly black and white. It was also applied to other races in certain contexts, but black and white was the one that was specifically called out in the Hayes Code. And this code persisted all the way up until 1956, when it was finally abandoned. And even then, Not necessarily because people had become more enlightened by then. It seems that in the post-war period, the film industry was kind of losing money, there were fewer theater goers, and they needed something to juice up the tension a bit. And so they allowed miscegenation to be depicted on the screen again. And so that's how interracial sex came back to Hollywood. Now, meanwhile, remember it was not just Hollywood, it was also all these laws on the books. Anti-miscegenation laws remained on the books in much of the country, all the way up until 1967. California repealed its in 1948, and there was a wave of states that followed them. But there were also a lot of states that hung on as long as they could, all the way up until 1967, when the Supreme Court case of Loving v. Virginia finally ruled that these anti-miscegenation laws were unconstitutional. Now today, interracial sex is widely accepted, but the Western genre is arguably still recovering. To this day, when you think of cowboys, most people only think of one skin tone. And as we've seen, that's partly, not wholly, but partly because of these fears of miscegenation and the history of how that got depicted or not depicted. Jamie Foxx slinging guns in Django Unchained, it feels like reversing of the genre, even though black cowboys did actually ride the range, and not in any small numbers. And the all-black cast of The Harder They Fall, that feels like revisionist history, even though all-black towns did exist in the Wild West, and in no small number there either. The black cowboy today remains invisible. When you think of cowboy movies, somehow you just don't think of Morgan Freeman in Unforgiven, or if you do, then you don't think of that as historically accurate. And yet, given all that we've heard today, the friendship and mutual respect between Clint Eastwood and Morgan Freeman's characters in that movie, well, that's actually probably the closest that I have personally ever seen gracing the silver screen when it comes to the Western genre. Still, to see that, it just doesn't feel that way. It doesn't feel historically accurate. Again, maybe it's just me, maybe you have a different perspective, but it doesn't feel that way to me, and I don't think that I'm the only one. Instead, what comes to mind when you think of cowboys is... You know, the Lone Ranger, a character ironically inspired by Black Marshal Bass Reeves, or John Wayne, an actor who played Black Texan Britt Johnson, erasing his race in the process. In the end, when it came to the Western genre, it just wouldn't do to let the romanticized, masculinized hero who gets the girl have anything more than a desert tan. The genre was whitewashed, in part because fears of interracial sex required cowboys to be whiter than white. Correspondingly, the black cowboy became invisible. That is what the friends of that little boy that Herb Jeffries met crying in the street in the 1930s, that is what they meant when they said that he couldn't play Tom Mix because, they said, Tom Mix ain't black we Well, that's all I've got for you today, folks. I hope you learned something. I certainly did. We'll be back next time when we'll finally explore the other side of the frontier, the perspective of its native inhabitants, for whom the Western takes on a rather different tenor. For them, it was the destruction of a way of life, including a way of viewing gender that baffled Europeans, and only today is starting to be appreciated. That's what we'll explore in the next installment Of our series sex in the wild west i don't know if it'll be coming next month exactly there might be some guest episodes or interview episodes in the meantime but it's coming meanwhile if you like what we're doing on this show you can support us by subscribing rating and reviewing on apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts or you can pledge on patreon where five dollars a month gets you a portrait in the time period and culture of your choosing i will draw you as a lariat looping lad or lass finding your fortune on the frontier with no regard to the color of your skin, or whatever you want. I'll make you look awesome, I promise. Just go to www.patreon.com btnewberg. That's patreon.com slash b-t-n-e-w-b-e-r-g. All right, folks, I'll see you next time. I'm BT Newberg, and this is the History of Sex. Podcast theme music mixed from tracks by Kevin McLeod. For additional credits, references, photos, and more, see our website at www.historyofsexpod.com.